Could you all see better this morning, the, the screen, the letters, read the words better? You know, a bunch of the guys spent a lot of hours up here yesterday, and I thought did a, did a really good job at uh, getting that changed over, and so uh, I think it'll be a lot better in the future. Well, open your Bibles tonight to the book of Ephesians chapter number 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to conclude this chapter tonight. Ephesians chapter 3. We begin reading in verse number 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. This is one of the most beautiful and beneficial prayers ever recorded. If you want to get stronger, go deeper, grow spiritually, and glorify God, you need to study this prayer carefully because Paul is giving us the key to a richer, fuller life. Now, there are several different requests mentioned here we'll talk about in just a little bit. But before we do, I want you to keep in mind that we must not divorce or disconnect the one request from the others, because if you pay attention, I think you'll see how that one can lead to the other. So all of this is connected. It's not like he's praying for this and then he jumps way over here to something that is entirely disconnected. And so everything is put together just as the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to write down the words to this prayer. The first thing I want you to notice here in verse 14 and 15 is the purpose. The purpose. Now, remember, Paul's first prayer was recorded in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. We've already looked at that, and that was the first of the two prayers mentioned in this letter. But now we come to the second. Notice in verse number 14 how this section begins. It starts with the words, for this cause. By the way, that's the exact same phrase that the last section started with back in verse number 1. For this cause. And so we have a new section before us. When he says, for this cause, immediately our mind goes back to that marvelous mystery concerning the Jews and the Gentiles and how that God, unknown to man, God was going to bring them together into one body. And so this is the mystery that he's been speaking about. And now 
With that in mind, he's praying for those believers in Ephesus for this cause. Now, we know then that he had something definite in mind. He's not just praying. It's for this cause. Not just because he didn't have anything else to do, by the way. Paul could have found plenty of other things to do. And nor was he praying because he was personally going through some great difficulty. Now, that listen, that's a cause for prayer when you're going through difficulty. But that's not what this prayer is about. It's not for him at all in the strictest sense of the word. He has a specific end in view And he's showing us when he says for this cause that this is a continuation of what he has just said. So the cause relates to the mystery and to our mission to make that mystery known. And as well as anybody that has ever lived, Paul knew about the difficulty of the ministry. He knew how difficult it was going to be for them to get this message out because they were hated and they were despised. And Paul wants them to enjoy the love and to experience the power of Christ. He wanted them to endure hardships. He wanted them to be able to, as he did when he came to the end, say, I've fought a good fight. I've You know, I've fought the fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished my course. That's what he wants for them. So this is the purpose in writing to them. The purpose has to do with their completion of the ministry of the mystery. Now notice the posture that he speaks of here. He says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, The very fact that he mentions bowing shows humility and reverence. In other words, it's showing an attitude of submission to and dependence upon God. Now, you've heard me say before, I've got some dear preacher friends that believe that is the only proper posture in prayer, that we must always bow if we're going to pray properly. Now, I have no idea where they get that kind of reasoning because when you study the Bible, you'll discover that there are several passages that show us that standing was the common posture in prayer and that some even prostrated themselves. That is, they literally fell down flat on their faces before God. But as was common in that day, they stood and oftentimes stood with their hands uplifted open, palms up, as though to receive from God. So that was the customary way for people to pray. But the very mention of the fact that he is bowing the knee has a special significance for the believers in Ephesus. Maybe you'll remember that some years before this, It's recorded in Acts chapter 20. Paul is en route to Jerusalem. The elders of the church at Ephesus are begging and pleading for Paul to not go there. They told him that the Holy Spirit had revealed to them that he's going to be taken, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be imprisoned, and that his life is in jeopardy. And here they are pleading, whatever you do, Paul, don't go. And I love Paul's response. Paul said, look, I do not count my life dear. In other words, 
Paul is saying, going to Jerusalem, ministering to people is more important to me than my very life. I wonder how many folks today could honestly say that. But after giving that explanation, the Bible tells us, He, this is verse 36 of chapter 20, He kneeled down and prayed with them all. You see, these words that He bowed down no doubt brings back all of those precious memories for those folks. And can you imagine as the elders there in the church and here they're standing and they're reading this letter for the first time. Those people are sitting there and as they begin to read and Paul makes this statement for this cause, I bow my knees. And they remember that moment. And I can just picture in my mind tears coming to their eyes when they think about that occasion. And now here is Paul after these years, and now he's in Rome in a prison cell writing to them and speaking about bowing down in prayer. So we see the purpose and we see the posture, but notice the people to, for whom Paul is praying. It says, or the person, I should say, verse 14, he calls him the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his description of God. The Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds these words, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I believe our prayers ought to be addressed to the Father. I believe that's the proper way to pray. And I've got Scripture for that. That's how Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. And so here we find Paul praying after that pattern. Now, I mention that because there are a lot of folks, especially in the charismatic movement, that see no problem at all in addressing the Holy Spirit and in offering the prayer up as it were to the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equal, but listen, they do not all have the same office, you see. There's a difference. So he is addressing the Father. Now, have you ever thought about that phrase, notice, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named? Have you ever thought about that statement? Do you have any idea whatsoever of what he's talking about when he says that? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Number one, it does not have anything to do with what is commonly called the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. There's no such thing. All of us are God's creatures. He created all of us. So we are His people in that sense, but we are not His children until we have been born again. That, listen, it's important that we understand that. We're going to get to that here in just a little bit and see the importance of it. Because if we're not His children, we don't have any right to address Him as our Father. You might as well pray to the devil because... For the unbeliever, their father is Satan, as Jesus said. But this phrase is named here, speaks about the fact it means to derive origin from and a name from. Now, some believe here that the emphasis should be put on Christ. Notice the wording of it. 
and you can get in a big argument over the grammatics of it. It says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom, in other words, they say this is referring to Christ, and then they bring in the word Christian, that we have received the name Christian as a result of uh, our connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. Most, however, especially of the older preachers years ago, say that it has to do with our connection with the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, speaking about the fact that we derive our origin from Him and our name as what? Well, as the sons of God. We get that connection with Him as a result of having been born again. Now, look, we can sit around and argue about all of these points forever and, and maybe not even come to a conclusion. Here's the important thing. The point is basically the same. And the point is that we have a relationship with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is addressing the Father as a child of God, and if you're not a child of God, then your prayers are in vain. They're worthless. They're just a waste of time. You'll hear a lot of people say, well, I pray every day. If I'm not mistaken, I was listening to to one of Oprah's shows or a part of it, and it had to do with some religious content. And so I was listening, and she alluded to the fact that she prays every day. Well, that what's the big deal about that? I mean, you've got Muslims that pray every day, but their prayers are in vain because God, the great Jehovah God, is not their Father. And so this is the person to whom Paul is addressing this prayer and then notice the people to whom he was writing, the people for which he was praying. Verse 16, notice you. Well, who's he talking about? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 says it has to do with the saints that are at Ephesus. But we know that he's speaking of these saints there as a, as a body, in other words, as a local visible church. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. And Paul was a man that loved the church dearly. Listen, if we really, truly love the church, we'll be praying for the church. And it would really be interesting not just to ask the question, but to get an honest answer from every person in attendance on Sunday morning and ask this question and know the honest answer. Have you prayed every day this week? for the service this morning? Have you been praying for the ministry of the church? I think we would be shocked if we knew the answer to that question. I think we might be surprised to learn that a lot of folks have gone through the entire week without ever one time praying specifically for the church and its needs, and its ministries, and so forth. Well, if you love the church, you'll be praying for it. So I'll let you be the judge of where you are in relationship to the church, but I'm telling you, if you're not praying for the church, you've got a real problem when it comes to loving the church. Now, all of this brings us down to the petitions of the prayer. 
And that's where we're going to spend our, our final time, the petitions of the prayer. Now, depending on how you view it, there are either four or five. Most people say there are four petitions here. But if you take verse 20 and 21 into consideration, there's actually five. And I believe that all five of those things need to be made mention of. So let's pay attention here to, to what uh, Paul is saying as he prays for them. Do you remember back up in verse 12, there's an interesting phrase here. It says, "...in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him." We've already talked about the fact that as believers we have access to God. Isn't that great? Wow! You don't need to go through the Pope. You don't need to go through some Baptist preacher. You can go directly to God because you belong to Him. You're one of God's children. You go directly to God. Access to God. But here's the interesting thing to me. We have access to God, but do you ever approach God? That's another way of asking, do you pray? So here we are with this high privilege. Access to God. But do we approach God? Well, Paul did. And notice the things that he's praying for. Number one, verse 16, he prays for strength. That is, strength for them. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Now, you're going to notice, before we go very far, that each one of these requests could constitute a sermon all to itself. In fact, unless I miss my guess, that'll be the text for the message next week, that one verse. And I'm really, I'm really battling against the temptation to, to take each one of these and make a separate message out of it. And I don't want the series to drag on forever, so I don't think I'm going to do that. But I most definitely plan to use this one verse next week and speak about this matter of strength. And, and here's the whole idea. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our life is evidence of salvation. The power of the Holy Spirit in our life is enablement for service. Are you with me? I said the presence of the Holy Spirit is evidence of our salvation. Paul said in Romans chapter number 8, If any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So to have the Holy Spirit in your life is an evidence that you've been saved, but to have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life is the endowment, the empowerment for Christian service. And that is exactly what Jesus promised in Acts 1 verse 8. Just before He ascended up into heaven, He said, But ye shall receive power. That's the Greek word dunamis that we get the word dynamite from. He said, You shall receive power. So this is the power that Paul is praying for because Paul knew exactly what it takes to live victoriously, and he knew they couldn't do it on their own. And listen, neither can we. That's why we need to pray for divine enablement, because only the Spirit of God can make us what we need to be. None of us are strong enough or smart enough to do it on our own. We are called upon 
to live a miracle. And that's why I often say the Christian life is not just difficult, it's not just hard, it's impossible. Think about all of the commands. To love your enemies and forgive those that despitefully use you and so forth. And you think about all of those commands and then you think about people that have hurt you and hurt your loved ones so deeply. You feel like slitting their throat, not praying for them. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can get the job done. And the sad thing is, we sit back so many times criticizing those in the charismatic movement for their false views and their undue emphasis on the Holy Spirit to the neglect of God the Father. And at the same time, in our mind, He's sometimes the forgotten person of the Trinity. I mean, listen, you even start talking about the Holy Spirit and you dare use the words Holy Ghost. I'll tell you, there's some Baptists just start getting shaky and scared to death. They think you've gone out on the far end or something like that, that you're about to, about to lose it. We need to get the emphasis back on the Spirit of God because it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. So Paul is praying for this divine enablement that they will receive the strength to be able to do what God has called them to do. Secondly, he prays for depth. Notice in verse number 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. Now notice there are three key verbs in this verse. Notice the word dwell, the word rooted, and the word grounded. Dwell means to settle down or to feel at home. Now remember, He's writing to believers, and as believers, they are already indwelt by the Spirit of God. So he's not asking the Holy Spirit to come to them or any such thing. The Holy Spirit is already within them, but that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is 100% pleased with them. You see, God is never pleased when we're entertaining sin in our lives. And sometimes we Christians do that, don't we? An unforgiving spirit, a bitter spirit, a covetous spirit, or whatever the sin might be. There are times that we entertain that in our life. And I'm telling you, when we do that, God doesn't feel at home. And I don't hesitate to use that word feel because God does feel, by the way. God has emotions. God loves. God hates. And God doesn't feel settled down and dwelling at home and comfortable in our life whenever we have sin in our heart. So he who is resident, that's the Holy Spirit, who, he who is resident needs to reside in our heart as the president. In other words, all of our directives ought to be received by the Lord, and we need to have an ever-deepening relationship with Him. And that's why Paul's using this word dwell. But then notice the word rooted here, and this takes us to the worlds of agriculture or plants. And, and for a plant, a tree, for example, to receive nourishment, for it to maintain stability, that tree has to send its roots down deep into the soil. Well, the analogy is very clear. 
that just as that tree is dependent upon the root system, even so, as believers, we have to go deeper and deeper, as it were, in our relationship with God. We cannot have just a surface relationship with God and expect to get the job done and to resist temptation and to enjoy the fullness of God. So he's praying for them to dwell, as it were, and to be rooted. And then notice grounded. Now, this is an architectural term here. We all know that a building has to rest on a solid foundation. In other words, it has to rest on something that is solid and firm. As believers, we are built on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This here is more than just trusting Him for salvation. This phrase has to do with relying on Him for absolutely everything that we need in life. And the storms of tribulation put us to the test, right? When everything is going good, I mean, our body is healthy, our mind is clear, our, our wallet is bulging with money, and everything's going good, and we've got friends all around us, you know, Hey, it's pretty easy to get by in conditions like that. But whenever God lets the devil pull the rug out from under us and we fall flat on our face, and all of a sudden we are just overwhelmed by these storms of tribulation, we better be grounded, as it were, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We better have a solid relationship with Him as a child of God. So Paul is praying... Paul is saying, look, I want you to be strengthened. But not only do I want you to be strengthened, he says, I want there to be depth in your life, depth in your relationship with the Lord. Number three, he prays for their comprehension. Look at verse number 18 and 19. This word comprehend means to, to grasp or to lay hold of something. And he says in verse 18, that they may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now, Paul gives us four dimensions of the love of Christ. He speaks of it as the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height. I remember an old preacher years ago that took this as his text and then turned to John 3.16 and took the various phrases of John 3.16 and applied them to these four dimensions. I'm not going to try to do that tonight, but you can probably figure it out for yourself to where you see, just as Paul mentions here, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and all of the aspects of God's love. But I'm telling you, the more you look into this, the more that you examine it and you think of it as, as a cube, as it were. And there's breadth to it and height to it and width to it and length to it. In other words, you've got all of these dimensions of God's love. And, and He's saying here to these people that He wants them to be able to comprehend this. But notice what He says next. I want you to comprehend this which passeth knowledge. It's like saying, I want you to understand what is not understandable. I want you to understand what is absolutely unsearchable. In other words, we can't take it all in. 
Well, listen, folks, we can't drink all of the water in Lake Houston, can we? I'm talking about us here as a body. We can't drink all that water out there. But it doesn't bother me one bit to go to the tap and turn on the water and drink the water that came out of the lake and to drink until I'm full and to be nourished from it. <laughs> I know what you're thinking or poisoned by it, whatever, you know, whatever the case might be. But, but you get the picture. That's the way the love of God is. I know, and Paul is saying, I know you can't comprehend all of it. It's beyond anything that we can understand. But we ought to be stretching ourselves day by day and doing everything in our power to learn more about this great love of God. What would that lead to? Well, look at the last part of verse number 19 that you might be filled with all of the fullness of God. Remember I said that these things are, all of these petitions are connected one with the other. And you see, this leads to fullness. And this is another way of saying that, Paul is saying to them, look, I don't want you to miss anything. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. As believers, as the servants of the Lord, I don't want you to miss a thing. In other words, I want you to receive everything that God has for you. Now understand, positionally, according to what he says in the book of Colossians, positionally, every believer is complete in Christ. And that is to say that we don't lack one single thing in Christ. That's positionally. But practically, all of us come short. Does that make sense to you? No? Positionally. Let me put it this way. The Bible says that when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, that we are justified. That is to say that God declares that we are innocent. It's like that we've never sinned at all. So positionally, in the sight of God, this is what the old-timers called the judicial reckoning of God. That when God looked upon those who had trusted Christ, He saw in them no sin. It's as though as they have never sinned. That is where we are positionally, but practically, the Apostle John said, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth's not in us. You see, that's the practical side of it. And so I think this is exactly what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, I want you to enjoy everything that God has for you. I understand that you are complete, as it were, in regards to your salvation, but God has much more for you. He didn't want them to live beneath their privilege. And I think the fact of the matter is, they, neither they nor we are anywhere near the full mark. I don't know about you, but... You know, I never get to that place to where I say, well, I'm absolutely, I'm just absolutely satisfied with my relationship with God. I think we're in real danger when we get to that place that we feel like that now we've gone as far as we need to go 
and that we can just begin to coast from here on out. That, that now we're on a plateau. Maybe we know more than anybody else in the church. Maybe we give more than anybody else in the church. Maybe we witness more than anybody else in the church. Maybe we attend more services during the course of the year than anybody else in the church. And so here we are. We excel in everything. We're much better than anybody else. And we get to thinking, okay, that ought to be good enough. And the very minute we start feeling that way, we are backslidden because the Bible teaches us that we are to be always growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for me, the very best definition of a backslider is when we stop growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I want your life to be full. I want it to be complete. I want you to get everything God has for you. Now, those are the first four requests. But Paul's not through. And notice what he does next, beginning in verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. I tell you, every one of those phrases is so, so rich and full of meaning. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Well, I don't even know how to approach that. I, I read verse 21 and I say to myself, is that a command? Is it a petition? Is it an expression of hope? Uh, does, is it words of praise? And you know, maybe the best way to look at it is to just consider it as all four of those things. It's a command, it's a petition, it's hope, it's praise. If you've read very much about Paul, you know that Paul wrote and spoke often about the glory of God. And we need to be reminded that that is the purpose for which every one of us exists. And that's his prayer here for this church, that God would be glorified there in the church. That, that's our main function, to glorify God. Well, how do we glorify God? We glorify God by being obedient to His Word. So as we then communicate the message, this mystery, the wonderful message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we communicate that to other people with the right attitude, God is glorified through our obedience. That's why we exist. If it's not our main concern to glorify God, folks, we might as well, we might as well lock the building, throw away the key, and just go our merry way. That's why we're here. Now, what we need to remember is, that's not only the purpose of the church, that's the purpose of every individual. And we as a church cannot live successfully. That is, we cannot glorify God in what we do unless we do that as individuals. Unto Him be glory in the church. Now, it doesn't say that God can't be glorified anywhere else. 
but it certainly points out that in the church he is to be glorified. And you'll notice that he mentions the one and only institution that Jesus Christ started. That's the church. The Greek word ekklesia, a called out assembly. That's why we exist, that we might glorify him. I was reading something just this morning, a letter I get that was actually addressed to the former folks that occupied this building and talking about their convention and some of their problems and some of their business dealings and so on and so forth. And I thought to myself, why in the world do they allow themselves to get so wrapped up in religious politics and all of this nonsense I mean, you read all of this and there's nothing there about the Lord, nothing there about glorifying God. It's all about, you know, what, what, they're, what they're doing. And nothing mentions the fact that we're striving above everything else to bring honor and glory to God. And so that's why we're here. That's why we're in this community. I know we all want to see souls saved. And I... I hope and I pray that that'll happen. That'll happen more often all of the time. But even if there's never one single soul saved, we ought to have a burning desire in our heart to glorify God by faithfully delivering the message that He's given to us. So I guess the bottom line is tonight, as Paul is expressing the desire of his heart and as he expresses his desire, for that church. And even as he addresses us, in that he says, notice there, throughout all ages, so that gets right up to what? Us. Throughout all ages. Churches in every generation. That would include us. But we need to ask ourselves this question. Can I honestly say that above everything else, it is the chief desire of my heart to bring honor and glory to my Heavenly Father? And as we leave here tonight, I hope that we'll leave with that as the heartbeat of our life. When you go to your job tomorrow or you go to school or the doctor's office or wherever you go, that'll be with that intent. That if I don't accomplish anything else, I want my life to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's sure worthy. Amen. Let's stand together. Father, how we thank you, Lord, that someone cared enough that they made known to us that wonderful mystery that man could never even begin to fathom. How that you loved us, although that we are yet sinners, and Christ died for us. And how we could be born again by simply trusting Him. We're so thankful that someone shared that news. And now, Heavenly Father, we realize that we have that same responsibility toward those that we come in contact with. So help us now as we enter into this new week. Each and every day, may you remind us of our awesome responsibility to glorify you with our attitude, with our actions, with everything that is within us. May we seek to glorify your name. 
But we beg it in the name of your dear Son and our great Savior, Jesus. Amen.